The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, secret Nazi A-bombs explode in a box with Heisenberg's cat, splattering the inside with terrible uncertainty and leaking out in tiny amounts that result in anxiety over our selection of cereal brands at the grocery store. Those cereal brands are numbered like the stars. Plus, we continue with a complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We have an interview with Robert Butner this time on the podcast. Bob talks about his new book, My Enemy's Enemy, which is a wonderful blend of secret, possibly true history and a modern thriller featuring a young Indiana Jones-like aviation historian heroine flying some very cool historical aircraft while searching for a terrorist who might have gotten his hands on a secret Nazi A-bomb. It's fun, fraught, and a wonderful history, contemporary storyline blend by a most excellent author. And we'll talk with Bob about that. And we continue with complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. The June hardcovers and new trade paperbacks are here. We have a great month of new offerings for you, four and all, and all of them worthy of a place in your reading stack. First off is To Clear Away the Shadows by David Drake, Adventures Beyond the Edge of the Known Universe. Now at peace, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy is able to explore regions of the galaxy without the explorers being swept up in a conflict. The Far Traveler is probing sponge space, surveying and cataloging life forms on the worlds it touches. Aboard, the ship's director of science, Dr. Vale, has her own agenda to learn more about the archaic spacefarers who roam the universe tens of thousands of years before humans reached the stars. The crew of the Far Traveler is poised to clear more of the shadows away from the deep past than ever before in human history, if they survive. Next we have A Liaden Universe Constellation Volume 4 by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller, a universe of great storytelling. For more than 30 years, the Liaden Universe novels by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller have captivated readers with their unique blend of action-adventure, science fiction, and romance. Now discover some of the shorter works that fill in the empty spots of the best-selling Liaden Universe. Sure to delight longtime fans and newcomers alike, these tales highlight why the nationally best-selling Liaden Universe novels are treasured by space opera aficionados with detailed world-building, strong characterizations, compelling romance, and edge-of-the-chair action in stories that range from cosmic to comic. And we have the book we're going to talk about this time in the interview, My Enemy's Enemy by Robert Butner. Stop the Nazi A-bomb. The elite terrorist known as the ASP has survived a U.S. drone strike. Now he sets his sight on America's heartland. Meanwhile, ambitious aircraft historian Cassidy Gooding and irascible Colorado cowboy Frank Locke unlock an aviation relic's dark secret and discover the terrible truth the ass may be closing in on. It seems that in late 1939, Nazi mastermind Heinrich Himmler commissioned a secret superweapon, a weapon thought to be nothing more than myth until now. Old secrets collide with new as Cass and Frank try to prevent the massive devastation of an American city. If they fail, millions may perish. 
And finally, we have another great edition of the Year's Best Military and Adventure SF. This one is Volume 5, edited by David Afsharrod. The best storytelling on planet Earth and beyond. The Year's Best Military and Adventure SF series roars into its fifth year, filled with daring do, military combat, and edge-of-your-seat suspense. Two lovable interplanetary rogues fight off implacable aliens to save the proprietors of a spacecraft scrapyard and perhaps escape with a prize in the bargain. Bitter interplanetary war erupts when a rogue planet is bent on winning its freedom from Earth's bureaucratic oppression, and a cybernetic soldier's replacement parts discuss their situation with mordant humor and together arrange the ultimate fate of their master. It's a year's worth of the best of the best science fiction from Michael Z. Williamson, Brendan Dubois, Christine Catherine Rush, William Ledbetter, Christopher Rocchio, Stephen Lawson, Suzanne Palmer, Richard Fox, and more. The Year's Best Military and Adventure SF, Volume 5, My Enemy's Enemy, by Robert Buechner, and the Aiden Universe Constellation, Volume 4, by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller, and To Clear Away the Shadows, by David Drake, are now available at booksellers everywhere. I want to welcome Robert Butner to the podcast once again. Hi, Bob. Hi, Tony. Great to be with you. Robert Butner has been general counsel of a unit of one of the United States' largest private multinational companies, served as a U.S. Army intelligence officer, prospected for minerals in Alaska and the Sonoran Desert, and was a National Science Foundation fellow in paleontology. A Quill Award nominee for Best New Writer of 2005. His best-selling debut novel, Orphanage, was a Quill nominee for Best SF and uh, Fantasy Horror Novel of 2004. And it's been a classic of modern military science fiction. Uh, It's been called that, and it is quite good. And it has also been called Heinlein-like in... in, uh, in the prose style. Its books for Bane include the Orphan's Legacy Science Fiction Adventure series, um, which are great, and SF techno thriller The Golden Gate, which was really fun. He lives in Georgia with his family and more bicycles than a grown-up needs, he claims. Out Now at Booksellers is a very interesting alternate history, present-day thriller blend that um, we're very excited about, um, which is called My Enemy's Enemy. Um, so, Bob, what your book um, has portion of it that starts that uh, takes place in, uh, or at least starts in in nineteen thirty nine. What possible hidden historical event may have happened in September nineteen thirty nine that um, that that sets us off with the story? Oh, okay, um, I'll, I'll issue a warning to the listeners. Uh, short questions. But long answers and possible mild spoilers ahead. Uh, The first thing to say about September 1939 is to remind listeners of some very unhidden historical events that surround it. On September 1st of 39, Germany invaded Poland, and that started World War II. In September of 38, Germany acquired the Czechoslovakian Sudetenland, and that's one of the world's principal sources of what was then the obscure element uranium. In December of 38, the German physicists Hahn and Strassmann first observed nuclear fission of uranium atoms. By mid-September of 39, the Nazis had convened a uranium club of scientists to study uranium's practical potential. 
the uranium club was naturally headed by the German theoretical physicist who was arguably second only to Einstein in public notoriety, and that's Werner Heisenberg. Now, some other physicists around the world immediately recognized Hahn and Strassmann's discovery could lead to an unprecedentedly powerful bomb. They also recognized that Germany was way ahead in the race to make it. So the, so the Germans were quite aware of what they had. Um, they were. They were aware of what they had, um, and, and that's the thing. So were a lot of other scientists elsewhere, uh, even though uh, a lot of the scientists uh, abroad uh, kind of tumbled to the fission thing about the same, what was going on with what Hahn and Strassmann had found. They tumbled to it as the German scientists did, and they said, wait a minute, they didn't realize the Germans already were on to it, uh, to what that discovery meant. And so they actually were advocating, look, we all just need to sit on this. We need to keep it secret. Well, you know, in a free society, that doesn't work. So, uh, so that, uh, that never came to anything. And so the race was on. And, uh, but the, the, hidden part of this uh, that surrounds all of that is that you had this loose uranium study group that was led by Heisenberg in Germany. And Heisenberg's Jewish sympathies had already gotten him in trouble with the Nazis. So did that really make any sense that they put him in charge of something this important? Or was it possibly just a front for a more serious Nazi bomb program that was contemporaneously devised? and devised by Heinrich Himmler. And you say yes in the book. <laughs> it's... Yeah, uh, yeah, and, and that's the thing. Himmler uh, actually, uh, Himmler isn't generally identified with that kind of thing, but if you think about it, he really is the guy who, who would be the most likely person uh, to have engaged in, in something like this, in an off-book deal like this. He was the second most feared and most powerful man in the Third Reich. He ran the SS. He ran the Gestapo. Uh, he ran all the other police forces in Germany. Even more than the rest of the Nazis, he believed that racially pure, blonde, blue-eyed Germans were supernaturally linked to the gods. He was the guy who sent these on-book and off-book expeditions around the world to obtain artifacts that proved Aryan racial superiority. Himmler is the guy who makes the Indiana Jones films cred credible. Mm -hmm. He was also the Nazis' best secret keeper. He not only devised and directed the vastest mass murder in human history, of which the Holocaust, believe it or not, was actually only a small part. Uh, other, other people like uh, homosexuals and gypsies um, were, were also slaughtered uh, in that program. Uh, and he managed to keep the whole thing secret. And all of what he did furthered his personal ambition, which was to beat out Hermann Goering, the uh, head of the Luftwaffe, uh, to eventually succeed, succeed Hitler. So that's, uh, that's what that program could have been and why Himmler probably would have been running it. 
Now, a little bit about your conception of who, so it stands to reason he would have picked uh, an Aryan-looking fellow um, who was a physicist. Um, so tell us about who gets in charge, um, who gets gets pulled into this this uh, Himmlerian uh, web and um, uh, Peter. It's where he comes from. What's what's he up to? He's one of our main characters, right? Peter Winter's one of our one of the main characters in the in the uh, in that timeline in the book. And uh, Peter is a brilliant young German physicist who is mentored by Werner Heisenberg. Heisenberg actually mentored some of the brightest lights in physics at that time. He. Uh, Edward Teller, the uh, father of the hydrogen bomb, just among many others. Uh, Peter also, though, happens to be the nephew of one of the 16 Nazis who were shot dead by the police alongside Hitler during the Nazis' failed revolution in Munich in 1923. That was called the Beer Hall Putsch. And the Nazis considered the 16 their blood martyrs, and their relatives, like Peter Winter, were Nazi royalty, whether they wanted to be royal, Nazi royalty or not, and Peter right. emphatically yeah. not. Um, so that's who Peter is. How did he? Why is he a physicist, and how has that developed? That. Well, he's a, he's a physicist because he's well, he's he's pretty much of an all-around guy. He's very he's he's extremely intelligent, uh, and uh, physics uh, is just uh, a place where a lot of people were landing in, at that time because it was a it was a hotbed of of new scientific thought. You know, you had uh, uh, Einstein had changed the world. In, in the early 1900s, he wrote four papers in one year that, that are described to this day as Einstein's miracle year because they were so profound. And that triggered a study of, uh, of the inner workings of the atom that ultimately led to the, the nuclear age uh, in which we now live. So it would have been logical for a very capable guy like Peter Winter uh, to uh, be interested in physics, even though at that time it was kind of an obscure profession, the kind of thing where, you know, you, you wouldn't expect to make a living, a good living doing it. Now we're in, I think it's Munich, right? Um, it, where he meets uh, a young lady named Rachel Bergman. Who is she? Uh, yeah, uh, Peter. Peter meets Rachel Bergman uh, along with uh, because he's a classmate of of uh, Jacob, who is uh, Rachel's older brother, and uh, they meet when Peter is nineteen and Rachel is sixteen, and the occasion is that Rachel conspires with Jacob and her shady playboy uncle, whose name is Max to sneak his sister out to a beer hall to celebrate her coming of legal age to drink beer, which in Germany at that time was 16. And they encountered Peter, and that happened in 1928. And Rachel thinks that Peter is the most beautiful human being she has ever seen, and the feeling is obviously mutual. 
So what happens in the, how does the ensuing years develop? Okay, well, uh, the Bergmans uh, are, are wealthy Jewish bankers, but Rachel's father is a classically stern German patriarch and also a German patriot first and a Jew second. Rachel's mother is a Jew first and last. And so Rachel reasons that getting her father to allow her to leave home for university, which is really what she really wants to pursue is the physics student Peter, is going to be difficult. Getting her mother to ever accept a Gentile son-in-law will be beyond difficult. But as Rachel's budding lawyer brother Jacob notes, Rachel has been getting away with everything for so long that she thinks mere reality can never defeat her. And uh, after Rachel's mother uh, uh, dies uh, in uh, a couple of years later, Rachel and Peter marry on January 30th of 1933. That coincidentally is the day that Hitler is appointed Chancellor of Germany. So with misgivings, they stay in Germany rather than lose Peter's opportunity to keep working with his friend and mentor, Werner Heisenberg, and rather than um, Rachel uh, leaving her family behind. Various events transpire, and, and sooner or later, Peter is put in charge of this program. And But he's married to a Jewish woman. Right, and that and what what transpires now in after Peter and uh, Rachel marry, uh, the Nazis kept their uh, uh, anti-Jewish uh, efforts a little bit on the down low the first couple of years of the Third Reich, but uh, and the Bergman family suffered like all Jews, but endured throughout those first years. But in 1935. Uh, shady Uncle Max uh, learns through his underground connections that the Nazis plan to implement uh, what are historically called the Nuremberg Laws. And the Nurembergs will, among other persecutions, criminalize Peter and Rachel's Aryan Jew marriage, mixed marriage. And in fact, it will criminalize, the Nurembergs uh, will criminalize even a sexual relationship out of wedlock between an Aryan and a Jew. So Uncle Max arranges to smuggle the Bergman family and their possessions to neutral Portugal, where, as Max describes it, the cost of living is reasonable, the climate is agreeable, most of the local wine is drinkable, and the port is incomparable. Now, Rachel... Peter and her brother Jacob refused Rachel's ailing father to abandon their homeland to the Nazis rather than stay and resist and to allow Peter to maintain his career with Heisenberg. So Rachel, who always thinks that mere reality can never defeat her, asks Max whether it'll be legal for two Aryans to marry or to sleep together outside of marriage. And Max's reply is, well, certainly. Of course, in the latter case, the usual risks of jealous husbands, pregnancy, venereal disease, and eternal damnation would still apply. Not that I speak from personal experience. Rachel 
therefore forces Max to use his underworld connections to expunge the record of her marriage to Peter and to create a new identity for her as a Catholic French nurse who cares for her father. Jacob departs for a janitor's job working for the Gentile-owned Leica Camera Company. Uh, There he will uh, be involved with what's called, what was what is now called in history the Leica Express, which was a dangerous program that Leica ran to uh, help uh, Jews uh, exit Germany uh, without, uh, outside the uh, normal requirements of the German law at that time. And so you're blending historical actualities here with um, what m- may have been. Most of what is, is in the book, virtually all of it, uh, is is true. That's the astonishing thing about World War II and about Nazi Germany is that there is so much that you just can't even believe, but it's true. And in fact, the hardest thing about writing this book may have been trying to figure out how to leave leave so much out. There's just so much out there that you say, this has got to be, this has got to be in the book. And then you say, no, there's really no room for it. And especially because this is not just a alternate or, or secret history um, novel, because we are, uh, we have another timeline in the book. Um, who Tell us a little bit about that. Let's just maybe talk about the story first, and then we can talk about how the heck. Yeah, well, uh, basically, uh, what uh, the the hidden history, the story of Rachel and Peter, uh, and the uh, hidden Nazi bomb program, is uh, uh, is of course, as we all know, lost to history because we've all never heard of it, and uh, uh, but it comes to light. In, in a dangerous context uh, because it appears that uh, Islamic terrorists uh, have gotten wind of it and, uh, and that they want to uh, try to uh, put that Nazi bomb, that lost Nazi bomb, uh, to the worst possible use. And, uh, and that juxtaposes the story of what's going on in the 1930s and 40s together with what's going on in contemporary America. And uh, that's what, uh, what you described as, as two timelines and, and you know, how that, how that came about. So, Yeah. Well, what is, well, tell us about this, uh, our terrorist, our bad guy, perhaps, um, the ASP. Not a, not a nice guy, but uh, also a reasonable person. I mean, he's he's got a logic behind his actions, right? Uh, yeah. Um, the ASP, uh, that is his nom de guerre. We never actually do know any other, uh, any other name of his. Uh, he doesn't think he's not a nice person. He thinks he's acting as an instrument of God, and he's tasked to strike a great blow against the great state, the great Satan, which of course is the United States, and like his already martyred brother, whose nom de guerre was the crocodile, uh, he's an upper-class Egyptian. 
and uh, as his boss thinks of him, he was born of good family. He perso- he's personally known to his boss, the Sheikh, since childhood. He's university educated. He's multilingual. He's skilled in the use of weapons and explosives. He's blooded in battle, and he is dedicated to God. And and that's who he is. And as uh, as you say, Tony, uh, unless you're him, you don't think he's a very nice guy. Yeah. Well, I mean, we meet, we see. I mean, one of the fun parts of the characterization is that we see him earlier. Um, when his brother is killed, I believe, right? Um, and and we see how competent he can be, and so he's he's set up as a, a pretty scary guy. Yeah, he's he's an extremely competent guy, and we do see that. Um, we also see that he is uh, he's remorseless because he doesn't feel that he's he feels that he's doing God's work. He's merely an instrument in God's hands. Um, and uh, and so yeah, he is he is different that way. And um, I think um, I think we were um, okay. Yeah, I guess, I guess that's that kind of explains who he is. How would he find out about this Nazi bomb that it, it might exist? Okay. Well, uh, yeah. Actually, uh, the way that he tumbles to that is he's. Uh, uh, there's an incident in the prologue that uh, that uh, kind of changes the chessboard with regard to Islamic terrorism, and he is uh, he is summoned to meet with the, the the remnants of an Islamic terrorist organization in Afghanistan, and uh, and they have received uh, a mysterious document uh, which appears to suggest uh, that that there's some potential uh, to do some serious harm to the United States. Uh, and uh, as the title implies, which takes is taken from the, uh, the old, it's actually an Indo-Aryan proverb that uh, dates back to, oh golly, sometime early AD, I think, and which is, you know, my enemy's enemy is my friend. And of course, uh, if you're an Arab terrorist, uh, you know, your enemy is the Jew, and uh, and uh, somebody else whose enemy was the Jew or the Nazis, and so therefore they they would make really good friends for you if you could reach it back across the years, and uh, and find some of the technology that they left behind. Mm-hmm. So uh, that comes to uh, that comes to uh, the ASP's boss's attention, and. He sends the uh, the ASP off on a on a lone wolf mission to uh, try and develop this asset. Tell us about uh, my favorite character is Cassidy Gooding, <laughs> because she's this bright young sprightly Indiana Jones aviation historian type, um, and her eventually she teams up with this irascible old cowboy Frank <laughs> Frank Luck. Um, tell us tell us about Cassidy. Yeah, well, uh, Cassidy is, uh, she's, she's 25 years old. Uh, she's uh, a Harvard-educated uh, Ph.D. who grew up in the Silicon Valley. Uh, her Ph.D. is in a field called aeronautical history, and she curates mid-20th century aircraft at the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum. Now, uh, unlike most uh, uh, history professors, uh, she... Uh, she sports a, a tat on her neck. Uh, she's got a ring in her eyebrow. 
and she doesn't suffer conservatives gladly. And uh, in that regard, uh, she is uh, she's a little bit, I, I will say that uh, like the Da Vinci Code's Robert Langdon, who is a professor of symbology at Harvard, symbology, there is no symbology department at Harvard, and in fact, uh, the, the precise title of Cass's uh, job at, at the Smithsonian, at the National Air and Space Museum, doesn't quite exist in that, in that fashion. Um, but the thing is, uh, that's, uh, that's an expertise that's particularly important. And that brings us, I guess, to, to Frank Luck. And Frank is a 60-something failed divorced Colorado rancher. He doesn't suffer gastropubs and the hippies who frequent them gladly. So you can imagine how he reacts to, uh, to this uh, Dr. Gooding when he finds out that she's not what he expects. And uh, he finds her because he stumbles into a confrontation with a mysterious assailant who uh, is, in fact, the asp. And Frank comes away with a set of lumps and under suspicion because of the death of an elderly woman. But he's also in possession of a steel briefcase that seems to be tied to Nazi to the Nazi German Luftwaffe that uh, has been left behind by the ASP. So Frank seeks out an expert, and he winds up uh, at the Smithsonian with uh, with Cassidy, and uh, they have a they have an interesting relationship. Yeah, it's uh, it it starts out gruff and and it stays gruff to some extent, but it's um, but um, the thing about Cassidy is that she really likes aircraft, and she likes her job a lot. Right. Yeah, and uh, she she does, and uh, she's she, she is passionate about it. Uh, her mentor uh, at the at the museum uh, challenges her. In fact, when when she resists. Um, accompanying Frank to go on this quest to find out what's behind this uh, uh, this artifact that Frank has brought to them, and uh, she resists that at first uh, because, well, she's a you know she's a 20th 21st century kind of gal, and uh, her idea of research is you, you get on the internet and, uh, and and you do those kinds of things and you and you do things uh, in a museum. And, and, uh, and reason things out from documents, and and uh, and he is a uh, he's one of these guys who one of these adventurers who goes around and uh, you know uh, hunts up old uh, wrecks in in glaciers and things like that. And he says, no, you've got to get out there in the field, and uh, and and this is the way you do it. And he says, and you and it's important that you do it and you do it now because this thing has to do with World War II. And the people who can tell the stories that are involved in that that happened in World War II are dying, Cass, and they're all going to be gone in a few years. As we all know, tomorrow's the 75th anniversary of D-Day, and there aren't that many people left who can tell those stories if they haven't been told yet. And so, with that, uh, her mentor sets her out. Uh, with Frank on a quest to find out what's going on, what's behind all this. You had mentioned to me that uh, in, in some ways it's kind of a 
father-daughter relationship that she develops with Frank. And, uh, and that's true. But, uh, you know, they say that good love stories involve, over time, a mutual transfer of energy. And that describes most parent-child relationships as well as sexual partner relationships. And like most relationships that are interesting, the transfer comes with a clash of personalities and a clash of cultures. And so, in other words, yeah, it's a, it, it, it does resemble, uh, by the time we're done with it, uh, a, a, a kind of a father-daughter relationship. Or maybe a May-Winter <laughs> relationship. But they, um, they're buddies, and they're, they work well together after a certain point. But it takes a while. So um, to what are they looking for to get back a little bit to the i mean it's 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 we don't want to give anything away but um they're searching for something and they start to glom on to the fact that, that that this may have really big ramifications and they're the only ones who may know about it right so uh tell us tell us a little bit so they're looking for an aircraft first of all or whatever this this case might connect to that that Frank has gotten um, who is, tell us a little bit about the, the, the possible aircraft, um, and, and how, why is it important that a different kind of aircraft would have been developed along with the Nazi A-bomb? Yeah, well, the, uh, and this is, this is something that, that Cass introduces to, to Frank when she first meets him, uh, at the museum where the Enola Gay, the plane that dropped the Hiroshima bomb, is on display. And she points out that the Enola Gay was not just this very advanced aircraft, the B-29 Superfortress, it was a special B-29 Superfortress that was modified so that it could fly higher, fly faster, carry uh, this enormously heavy uh, new weapon, the atomic bomb. And uh, and so then it, it becomes when they realize that that this artifact may suggest that the Germans were developing a similar kind of a plane, a plane that could cross cross the Atlantic Ocean, say from Germany to New York City, uh, that uh, that there wouldn't really be a good reason to develop a plane that advanced. Um, because you'd need to build thousands of them to rain destruction down on New York City with conventional bombs. And the Germans didn't have those resources. On the other hand, if you, if you had a bomb, then it makes perfect sense. It's a package deal, like the Enola Gay and the atomic bomb. Similarly, a transatlantic, in fact, the Germans were constantly um, seeking what they called the America bomber, a way to you know, shut those guys up uh, over there across the ocean who are always spouting off about what's, what's wrong with the way we're running our country here, you know, in the pre-war years. And, uh, uh, and in fact, the, the design, and I don't think we're giving too much away since it's on the, on the cover of the book, uh, the, uh, yeah, the, the design is, it's called the, it's called the Horton 18A, and it actually is a, a design that the Germans had at least on the drawing boards at the end of the war, at the end of World War II. And it was, uh, it very much resembles the B-2 stealth bomber 
It's a flying wing, has no tail, no, no, no vertical surfaces on it. Uh, it's powered by six jet engines. Uh, and because stealth aircraft, well, because flying wing aircraft uh, has so much wing surface and no fuselage, fuselage, all it does is get in the way. It doesn't provide any lift. Uh, a a uh, flying wing aircraft can fly higher, faster, carry larger payloads than a conventional plane with, uh, you know, skinny wings and a fuselage. So the Horton 18A would have been just what, what the doctor ordered if you had, if the Germans had an A-bomb and wanted to uh, change the game that they were losing uh, by bombing New York, for example. So, uh, so they kind of back into the fact that the Germans may have uh, may have been on, may have been about a uh, clandestine nuclear weapons program uh, because uh, they have hints that this that such an airplane may have been built. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit. Let's go back to the World War II story a little bit. Um, tell us who the pilot. Um, you, you bring up this um, kind of brilliant female pilot uh, who was a jerk Nazi also. Um, she's historical, right? Um, that that you talk about in the in the book, Ilse Jaeger. Yeah. Now, uh, Ilse actually, uh, Ilse Jaeger is a fic fictional character, but uh, she is a dyed-in-the-wool Nazi. She came up through the ranks of the Band of German Maidens, which was the Aryan girls' alternative to the boys' Hitler youth. Uh, mm -hmm. And her piloting mentor is Hannah Reich. Now, Hannah and, and Ilse is kind of a stand-in for, for Hannah. Okay, I was thinking about Hannah. Hannah Reich is the actual historical figure, right? She's Hannah Reich is a historical figure. She was the German Amelia Earhart. Uh, but as Cass Gooding's boss admits, uh, Reich was really a far more accomplished aviator than Earhart. Uh, Hannah Reich was, uh, she was this pretty, petite, vivacious, smiling, blonde little girl, and she flew all manner of dangerous experimental aircraft from the world's first helicopter uh, to the Comet 163, which was the world's first and, to date, the only rocket plane that was ever flown in combat. Um, Hitler uh, took a shine to her because she was a perfect example of, you know, what a, you know, what a, a good, blonde, blue-eyed Aryan woman should be. Um, and uh, he actually personally presented to her uh, the Iron Cross with Diamonds, which was a, a very high acolyte, and a number of other uh, honors, and, uh, and kind of pumped her up uh, for her heroics. And in bad times, um, he, uh, she was in the Fuhrer bunker with him in Berlin, and he presented her with a poison vial so that she could uh, join him in suicide and uh, she declined and uh, actually wound up uh, going on to have a career in aviation until she died in 1979. But uh, Ilsa uh, kind of takes off as sort of a, a, a super Hunter Reich uh, and what she might have done uh, if, if some of these other eventualities had been present. 
So we have a we have a protege, um, and she shows up, and it it to uh, it, where Peter and Rachel are, and things go awry. Um, tell us about the uh, not too much about the the climax, but the one thing that's cool about it is this weird airplane helicopter thing you have them flying uh, <laughs> the storch that. Um, that Cass is able to fly. What? Um, yeah, well, actually, there there are two there are two aircraft that that have a hand in the in the end of the book, and uh, one of those is uh, is the 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 Fiesler Storch, which is uh, that German for stork, and the stork was a it was a, a light aircraft. It was revolutionary for its time, uh, like so many of the things that the uh, so many of the technologies that the Nazis developed. Uh, it was a single-engine, two-person observation aircraft. It could land on a dime and take off from a nickel. People used to describe it as a helicopter before there were helicopters. It was so good that Rommel used it in, in North Africa, and that was one of the reasons he was able to, you know, to see the battle space and be such an effective commander. And uh, the Storch was so good for that that uh, when the British captured one, Montgomery had it painted with British roundels, and then he did the same thing. He flew it around North Africa uh, to observe the battle space. Uh, Reich flew a Storch and landed it uh, um, at the uh, at the Reichstag, at the at the Führer bunker in the final uh, hours of World War II, um, and uh, flew it through a, a hail of small arms fire uh, to uh, to to uh, she'd been summoned. Uh, her boss had been summoned by Hitler, and uh, and that was how she got there and happened to be there when. Uh, Hitler uh, gave her the afforded her the opportunity to uh, join him in suicide, and uh, so the the Storch was one remarkable aircraft, and the other remarkable aircraft that's involved there is uh, is a helicopter actually, and Cass uh, has her rotorcraft license. She's a novice rotorcraft pilot, and uh, and uh, they they wind up with a helicopter it's an old helicopter it's called a uh, uh, it, it's actually it's called a Kamen h143 I believe and it's a it's a twin rotor airplane it, it looks like a it looks like a, a toaster uh, on skis it's a very odd aircraft and it's a design that actually was designed by a guy named Flettner, who was a who was a German aircraft, a Nazi German aircraft designer, and uh, and it came to be, and that pointed up another interesting aspect of um, the war in the post-war, and that is what's called Operation Paperclip, which was a program that the U.S. developed at the end of the war that basically whitewashed uh, Nazis who could do some good for the United States uh, in the upcoming Cold War against the Soviets. And so Werner von Braun, the uh, father of the Saturn V rocket that got us to the moon ahead of the Russians, was also the father of the, of the German V2. Um, 
uh, and Fletner, the designer of the uh, of the the helicopters, called a Pedro uh, because it was uh, its uh, rotors drooped and it looked like a sombrero. They looked like a sombrero, and uh, and the the Pedro had some some unique aspects that made it very suitable for air sea rescue, for example, and it was used to good effect in Vietnam. Uh, for that purpose. And uh, so you have all these exotic aircraft in play. Uh, in fact, we haven't even talked about some of them and probably probably shouldn't get too deep into them. But uh, it's, it's, that's one of the things that I thought was fascinating about this. I built models as a kid and I always, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I always liked airplanes. And, uh, and this was just a chance to, uh, to, uh, delve into a whole bunch of them yeah there's some i mean there's all kind of cool historical nuggets um in my enemy's enemy that uh that it's just make it a fun read and especially uh, the way that it gets related to uh, what might have been so how did you uh how did you conceive the book when you started um did you want to tell a tomb timeline story did you have some inspirations uh, from 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 other novels like this or what? Well, uh, that's a that's a really good question um, because um, the uh, okay. Let me see here. I'm I'm losing my place here. Um, but yeah, this actually started as a straight up alternate history project, and what took me to it was the was that question that obvious contradiction that Nazi Germany had easily outstripped the world in defense technology from their jet and rocket planes to their ballistic missiles but they didn't build an a bomb and they didn't build it because Heisenberg told them it was too hard to do and the corollary question then becomes Heisenberg was brilliant you know, was his thumbs down, was that really a noble, deliberate, dangerous sabotage? Well, history tells us that it wasn't for various reasons, but uh, he just made mistakes. And, and the other uh, German physicists who were involved with the project just made mistakes. Uh, that seems to be the, the, that's the historical consensus. But it struck me that that would have been, that's the story we'd all like to hear, is that a German physicist had the, the guts and the daring to risk everything to, um, to prevent the Nazis from using, uh, from developing and, and obtaining an atomic bomb, and also uh, into the bargain perhaps um, alleviate the suffering that uh, Jews and other minorities were undergoing in, in Germany at that time. But here's the thing, the thing about alternate history. As it's usually practiced, it's detached from, uh, from today because it, it never was. And so therefore it appeals to a relatively narrow tranche of readers. Now, um, on the other hand, 
there are other novels uh, that appeal to a broader group. Um, the fact is many mainstream thrillers are really alternate history, but with immediate consequences for the world in which we readers actually live. You take the Da Vinci Code, for example. It's really the alternate history of a timeline in which Jesus fathered descendants. And My Enemy's Enemy differs from the Da Vinci Code primarily in that the past's hidden history is shown in an interwoven timeline and not just told by a professor, as, as is the uh, method uh, that's employed in books like The Da Vinci Code. Uh, of course, there's also the difference that The Da Vinci Code is an enormously popular book, and this is just, you know, me writing a story. But um, anyway, that's, uh, that's how it kind of came uh, to evolve from an alternate history story, straight-up alternate history, to something that was more in the nature of a, of a hidden history story. Well, I mean, there's other examples. There's uh, I've always loved the, uh, let's see, what's the name of that book now that I'm thinking about? This A.S. Byatt novel that, um, that, that tells a story about contemporary scholars looking for something and then a love story between a, a romantic era poet and, um, and a woman he shouldn't have been in love with. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you if you really think about it, uh, so many thrillers. Uh, Possession. That's the name of it. Yeah, you know that backstory uh, for their, uh, you know, uh, for their uh, call it their MacGuffin, if you want to, um, and and this is just a way to uh, to to advance that story where the the hidden history part of it is is a larger part of the story. And in fact, I believe that in the case of a, a story about Nazi Germany, that is, that's a story that deserves not just to be told, but actually to be seen by the reader. And really the hardest thing, but, but the other part of that is, what makes it really hard to write about Nazi Germany is that you either you've got to strike a perfect balance between something that is as unreadably depressing as Schindler's List and something that is as absurd as Hogan's Heroes. And one way to leaven uh, the gravity of that uh, timeline story about Nazi Germany is to break away from it from time to time and uh, to have uh, a chase involving uh, an irascible cowboy and uh, and a 25-year-old uh, wisecracking uh, aeronautical historian. And so those those two stories blended in that regard. They blended rather nicely. Yeah, it's a that's a really fun it's a really fun read. And it and you're right. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't uh, throw you into <laughs> depression about about everything, even though there are portions set in uh, in in a very dark era. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and and I that's the thing. I'm able to treat those things. I was able to treat those things with appropriate gravity, and yet 
um, it was po- it's possible for the reader then to step away from it and and still be immersed in the greater story. Yeah, it well it turned out really great, <laughs> and it's out now at booksellers. The book is My Enemy's Enemy by Robert Butner. It's available everywhere. Um, and Bob, thank you so much for talking with us about My Enemy's Enemy. Well, thank you for having me, Tony. It's been a pleasure as always. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Chapter 28 Dreams of drowning tormented him until the ache in his chest brought him back to consciousness. Ashok lay there, taking stock of the pains in his body. There were healing puncture wounds in his back, side and foot. Everything hurt but his lungs were especially sore. He remembered being swept along, out of control, breaking the surface to gasp for air before being dragged back down. He'd been disoriented, flailing, crashing against rocks and tangled in clinging underwater vines. As his air had run out, his lungs had burned, and evil water had flooded in to destroy him. And at that last instant, he had known fear. Why are you laughing? He'd not realized he had been. Because they didn't take everything from me, after all. Wherever he was, the light was poor. Small bits of sunlight came through cracks above, and there was a single candle burning next to him. It smelled like river. He was flat on his back, on a thin blanket, on a plank floor. He'd used the heart too much and it felt like his skull was split in two. But Ashok turned his head far enough to see who'd spoken. There was a woman kneeling next to him. She had the candle, but was wearing a scarf and a hood, so he couldn't make out any of her features. Where am I? Hiding. Not a very specific answer. It took a moment to collect his thoughts. From the odd, stomach-churning sensation of rocking he figured that he was on another barge. And Gruvidal was still sheathed at his side. That was good. Even as loyal as he was to his sword, he would have had a very difficult time going back into the water after it. Hiding where? 
This compartment is used for smuggling contraband past checkpoints. It may offend you to know this, Protector, but no one likes to pay taxes. I'm not a Protector anymore. How did I get out of the river? The Keeper was given a vision of where to find you, and we fished you out of the river. But I drowned. Oh, my life. The kiss of life. I shared my breath with you. That made no sense. Witchcraft. Now it was the woman's turn to laugh. If I had magic that strong, would I be on a barge piloted by untouchables? You're looking a bit jumpy there. I've got to remember your kind likes to execute first and ask questions later. It's nothing like witchcraft. It's just an old trick. When someone drowns, push out the water in their chest, then force your air into their mouth to fill their lungs while they can't. Sometimes they live, sometimes they don't. Ashok had never heard of such a thing, but he didn't normally associate with brazen criminal women. A useful trick to know when you've spent as much of your life around water and morons as I have. Try not to move. Your wounds began to heal as soon as I pulled the arrows out, just like the keeper said they would. But there was a poison on one of those that struck you. It was like nothing I've seen before, and I've seen some nasty ones. I forced you to drink some soothing tea, but even then, I'm amazed you're alive. You've been... I expect you will remain weak for a few more. She got up and left him. Ashok must have fallen back to sleep because the next time he opened his eyes, the sun was higher in the sky and there was a bit more light sneaking through the cracks. Outside, men were singing, a rough, rhythmic working song. He was in a wooden room with an extremely low ceiling. His headache had subsided. A thin man was sitting cross-legged on the floor next to Ashok's blanket. He was probably close to Ashok's age, but losing his hair. He was wearing simple clothing, cleaner and in better repair than what most castless would possess, but without any of the insignia a worker would normally wear to indicate his station. He didn't carry himself like a warrior either, head up, shoulders squared, but more like someone who simply didn't care how he presented himself at all. The man had a bucket at his feet and a ladle, which he pushed toward Ashok's lips. He was so thirsty that he drank without question. It was wonderful. Water was eager to murder them all, but man couldn't live without it. It was a very spiteful arrangement. Hello, my friend. It appears that you are feeling better. It turns out that protectors are as difficult to kill as the legends make them out to be. Pierced, burned, poisoned and drowned, yet still among the living. I knew you are the one I've been waiting for. The voice sounded familiar. He'd not gotten a very good look at him that night, but Keita had been a memorable lunatic. You came to see me in prison. You called yourself the Keeper of Names. That is correct. I am Freeman Keita. A free man. Ashok snorted. There's no such thing. Of course you would believe that. Your only freedom has been to serve in an approved manner, which, if you think about it, is entirely contrary to the very concept. I remember all that nonsense about not belonging to any house or caste. 
I'm impressed that you can remember anything at all. That poison was strong enough to drop an elephant. The warrior caste didn't use poison. The law declared that to be a cowardly assassin's weapon, which meant Ashok hadn't been the only lawbreaker on that bridge. It had to be something rare and extremely potent to have this much of an effect on his body. Those who touched the heart of the mountain were immune to most poisons, and if he were ever exposed to this particular mixture again, the heart would be ready to counteract it, and there would be no effect at all. One song completed, the casters began a new song outside. He found the song strangely familiar. May I ask you a question, Fall? That isn't my name. That's how it was recorded in the book. What book? The most important book of all books. The book that tells us who we really are. But I'll call you whatever you wish, even if your name is a lie. Keeter dipped his head in an apology. So, Ashok, why did you try to escape at the bridge rather than fight? There weren't that many warriors between you and freedom. From the stories I've heard, they wouldn't have been able to stop Mabera. Why not cut a path through them? Why risk your life instead? Why put yourself in the water? That wasn't a question. That was many questions, and the answers were so complicated that Ashok wasn't sure about them himself. I didn't want to kill them. You kill everyone. Why not these? I don't know. You chose the unknown rather than the familiar. I believe you will be doing that quite a bit in the near future. I believe, before you discovered the truth, you would have killed them all without a second thought. You've been lied to for so long that now you see the whole world is crooked. But the forgotten knows that you learn to see things as they really are. I don't know your mind, but you going beneath the water is a sign. Did you know that among the beliefs of the old tribe before the kings, some believed in a thing called baptism? It represented rebirth. A man would be submerged beneath water, and when he came out of the water, it represented a rebirth, a new beginning. This is your new beginning. I'm on a barge of fools, Ashok muttered to himself. What caused you to leave the prison? The last time we spoke, you seemed content enough. Duty. But Amand had ordered him not to speak of it. My reasons are my own. Keita grinned. We both know that's a lie. You own nothing. Even your most prized possession owns you, not the other way around. You've never determined a thing for yourself. Blind obedience has carried you through life like this river carried your body to me. You go where the current takes you, Ashok. He was still dizzy and nauseous, but Ashok sat up. Keita seemed surprised that he was able to do that already, and he was even more surprised when Ashok grabbed Keita's collar, twisted it tight, and dragged him over to whisper, Listen carefully, Keeper. I've no patience for lectures. Who are you, and what do you want? Of course you're impatient. Despite being on the edge of strangulation, the keeper didn't cower. He was made of sterner stuff than his appearance suggested. 
I should have known the forgotten would pick a man of action. I understand. Believe it or not, I was a lot like you once. Ashok sincerely doubted that. The forgotten. So you're one of those fanatics. I serve the forgotten. That's what a keeper is. It's an office in the priesthood, left over from the age of kings. You'd think an expert on murdering the religious would already be aware of such things. I never needed to know the particulars. Their kind disgusted him. Devotees to the old ways were enemies of all that was good. He drove his knuckles into Keita's neck. It wouldn't take much effort to crush his throat. You're all the same to me. The keeper grimaced as his face turned red. It has been proclaimed that you must meet the prophet. I'm the only one who can take you there, he gasped. How do you know I seek him? Ashok demanded. You already are? That seemed to surprise the keeper more than the threat of strangulation. We've been expecting you. Explain. You may have a mission from man, but I've a mission from the gods. Ultimately, they take us to the same destination. I'm supposed to convince you of the truth. I've been called to be your guide. I need no guide. I travel alone. Your teacher, then. There's nothing you have to say that I want to learn. If I have been reborn, it is as a man with even less patience for foolishness than before. Ashok squeezed harder. Your order has been searching for years and failing. You can't meet the prophet until the keepers arrange it. A test. You must. Keita was about to pass out. I have to proclaim you worthy first. I see. It was tempting to snap the fanatic's neck and get off this blasphemous barge, but Ashok let go of Keita, who scrambled back, gasping. I will pass your tests. You will take me to this prophet. Keita rubbed his bruised throat. I won't if you're attacking the Forgotten's loyal servants. Very well. I will respect your offers for the duration of our journey. You will take me to him. Ashok found the next few words so extremely distasteful that they were difficult to speak. I will become his servant as well. What? That statement was so surprising that it registered even through the indignity of being choked with his own shirt. I've not... But you're already... You are not so eloquent that you've swayed me into worshipping your false gods, Keeper. I have my reasons. Do we have an agreement or not? Keita seemed thoughtful, if a bit intimidated. However he'd expected his god to deliver the miracle of the cooperative protector, this certainly wasn't it. We have an agreement. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Jenkowitz. And the pot at the end of the rainbow, which likely contains uranium ore, 
considering the multi-spectrum glow. A time-traveling helicopter to rescue him from war zones and medieval plague outbreaks when he goes looking for new material, plus thanks, praise, and huzzahs for Robert Buechner, author of My Enemy's Enemy. Please join us next time here at the Hammering Heart of Science Fiction and Fantasy. I'm Keep Reaching for the Stars.